Amen. We are in a series called Edit, and um, this is, is our third week. And um, in week one, if you weren't here, we talked about shame and how we'd like to just get shame out of our, our lives as followers of Jesus. Last week, we talked about the decisions we make and how weighty they can be upon us and how we'd like to go back and change a few things. And so uh, this week, we're going to move forward, and we're talking about a topic today that's so well-traveled that if, if you're not careful, it'll just kind of pass you by because um, we're talking about faith versus doubt. And if Christendom were a vehicle, faith would certainly be the engine. We know that it plays a very big part in salvation and in how we move forward with God, how we believe, um, how, how we anchor ourselves to the cross, etc. Faith is just um, the center of all of it. And so I, I just want you to stay with me again because um, this is such a well-traveled topic that you kind of go, you know, we, we understand faith is faith, but um, I hope to bring out just some different stuff this morning to challenge us as we battle out with doubt. So in thinking about um, this morning, I started to think, and I made a list actually of things in our culture that if it were up to me, I would get rid of, I would edit them out. And um, I ended up with quite a few things. And I think if you did the same exercise, you would too. We come up with things that we say, well, the world would be a better place or my life would be better, my marriage would be better if I could just edit these things. And so I I wrote down my top three because I wanted to share them with you. But um, I wish that we could edit out the McRib sandwich. I wish it it was gone um, because it's just nasty. And so I wish it was gone. Um, I wish we could edit the tweets of a certain high-powered individual. Um, I'm not going to say who, but, you know, some things that are said that I'd like to feel safer about there. Um, And then I wish we could edit out the Kardashian family. I I know that sounds pretty rough, but um, sometimes, I don't know, it's like when I come in contact with some things I read or see, um, it, it, it kind of stumps me. And so it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you're holding the remote and you want to turn it, but you can't. It's like you're so caught up in the disbelief of what, what you're seeing that it paralyzes you. And you're like, your body wants to turn it, but your mind is like, give it just a few more minutes because this is going to be so good. And, and so you're, you got this dichotomy going on. You're, you're at conflict. You want to stop reading the article, but it's like the disbelief becomes so attractive that, that you just, you're stuck. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way about something in, in your own life that you had a disbelief that was so strong it was disabling, that you were just kind of stunned to find out this is what's happening, this is what's going on, I can't believe it kind of, kind of language. And so disbelief or doubt, I'm going to reference those as synonyms today, but when disbelief and doubt creep in, they're actually the polar opposite of faith. And I'm going to make a statement here that is going to sound pretty significant, but stay with me um, when I say this. Don't, don't check out. But it's actually that disbelief and doubt, unfortunately, is just as strong as faith. Because we know that Scripture tells us that even a small amount of faith, the Bible gives us the example of, of a mustard seed, just, just something small. If I can just put my faith in God just enough, it, it can move mountains um, it can do amazing things, but all of us have experienced or we've lived life with somebody who has experienced a seed of doubt and watched that seed of doubt become just as powerful. Uh, you can see in a child, and maybe that child has been spoken to and said, well, you, you aren't good enough, 
And some reason that seed, that thought takes place in them. It gives them doubt and disbelief in themselves. And it follows them all throughout their, their whole life. We've clearly been able to see that both of these things, faith and doubt, are very, very powerful to the human condition. And so Jesus teaches a lot about it. He talks about how without faith it's impossible to please God and how faith is, is, is uh, something that is, is a substance of something that we've hoped for. It's an evidence of something we cannot see, and he's challenging our, our thoughts about what faith actually is with us. And so I want to just start this talk by, by giving us this first point, and it's this. The most common struggle we have is found between our feeling and our thinking. We have a lot of you here today, and you operate by feeling. You are intuitive. You sense things. You feel it. You, you, that's how you buy homes, based upon how it feels to you. That's how you got into relationships, based upon how it feels for you. Um, and then there are some of you who are thinkers, and everything is from a cognitive function. Um, you Again, you bought the house you're in because it made sense. It was logical. Okay, You looked at, at your biological clock and said, it's time for me to get married. And from that cognitive uh, choice, you said, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm a thinker, and I've, it's time. It's time for me to do this. It's time for me to have children. It's time for me to make this amount of money, and so on. And so somewhere in between that feeling and thinking is where doubt can come in and reside in us. And it's a big struggle for us, and I'm going to show you in Scripture. And today we're going to go to Luke chapter 24, and this is the story. If I can just give you a little bit of context this is what's happening right now in Luke chapter 24. Um, Jesus has been to the cross, and he has been resurrected, and people are starting to hear about it and find out about it, and they're completely shocked by it. They are in disbelief that what has happened is actually happening. And so here's where we pick up in Luke 24 and verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. These women are going about all the common traditions of a Jewish burial. And at first glance, no one seems to be eagerly awaiting the resurrection of Jesus. Even his disciples are not graveside to honor him. They are actually hidden behind locked doors they're full of fear. This is the same conversation that's going to play out where they see him and Thomas is still in a locked room saying, I will not believe it until I see the scars on him and put my fingers in them. I, I, I'm not going to believe and buy into this stuff. But once the women arrived at the tomb, there's no body to be found. In fact, they find two angels declaring the resurrection of Jesus and they remind them Hey, this is what he told you about. He told you that he was going to go to the cross, and he told you that he was going to be resurrected. And so that takes place through verse 7. And in verse 8, it says, and they remembered his words. Once the angels reminded them, they were like, you're right. He did tell us this was going to happen. And in Luke 24, verse 10 and 11, it says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Right? This is very important for us to get. And the reason I think so is because these were people who were very close to him. 
These were not people on the periphery of this relationship. These were people who were very important to Christ, and now they are stuck. They, they know, hey, this is what he told us, but I'm just really struggling to actually believe it. And I think this probably in some way rings true in all of us because we've all experienced this thing where we understand we love Jesus. It's not like we're unbelievers or we've rejected him, but we struggle to just believe sometimes, to hold on to the promise of God, to believe that what he's put in our heart is going to come to pass, to read a scripture and think it actually applies to us. And there's this conflict in our growth with God where we kind of go back and forth in this tug of war between doubt and faith. And it goes back and forth. And it's, it's, it's almost this bipolar experience. One day we're, we're up and we're full of faith and we believe God can do anything. And within a day's time, life attacks us and an experience arises and now we find ourselves full of doubt, much like these people saying it just seems like an idle tale to me. It seems like it's just something that I can't get into. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you had so many feelings that you didn't even know what, what to think anymore. So the question that I want to start with is really this, how did these men and women who were part of Jesus' inner circle, go from seeing a boy's lunch feed 5,000 people, seeing blind people see for the very first time, and even one of them walking on water suddenly are now locked behind a door in fear for their life. How does that even transition in, in, our, in our minds? How can that even take place? that they've seen such and experienced such and heard such and now be in a place full of fear. But if we think about it, it's not far from our own lives. We do the same thing. In my reading of Scripture, there are three levels of faith that Jesus teaches on. I'm going to give those to you this morning. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 8, and Jesus is calming a storm. The scenario is this. The disciples, and I want to point this out, of where they are, again, because I think it proves the point. In Matthew chapter 8, if you follow this chronologically, Jesus in, in verse 1 heals a leper. In verse 5, he heals the centurion servant, which I'll talk about in just a second. And then in verse 14, Peter's own mother-in-law is healed. And in verse 16, it says many were healed, all who would come to him, including the demon-possessed, and so on. And then all of a sudden, after seeing a leper healed, and the centurion servant healed, and Peter's mother-in-law healed, and a whole night of people experiencing physical healings, they are on a boat crossing a sea, and a storm comes up, and Jesus is sleeping. And they freak out. And they get on to him. Do you not care about us? We're about to lose our lives up here. And you're sleeping. And Jesus rebukes them and says, Oh, ye of little faith. So little faith is one of those that he talks about. People having little faith. You don't trust me. You don't, you don't believe me. You got just enough. You, you got little faith. And we look at this story, at least I do, and I say, How in the world can people who were physically present, seeing the centurion's servant healed and Peter's mother-in-law healed and, and leprosy healed and a whole room of people experience healing and then get on a boat where he's at and in, get in fear for their, their lives. We're not far from that. It's the ebb and flow of faith and doubt. 
And so in Matthew chapter 8, again, when he's calming the storm, he, he rebukes them, O ye of little faith. And then it goes on in Mark chapter 5, there's a lady with the issue of blood. She reaches out, she grabs a hold of his garment, and he says to her, thy faith or your faith has made you well. So there's little faith, there's thy faith, and then in Matthew chapter 8, the centurion comes to him. And if you haven't ever read this story, you, you deserve to know it. So go home and read it this afternoon. The centurion comes to Jesus and says, listen, I got a sick servant in my house. And Jesus asked him, do you want me to go and heal him? And the centurion says this. He says, hey, listen, I, I get it. I'm a man of authority. I'm a man under authority. I tell this one to go and he goes. I tell that one to go and he goes. And so you don't have to come to my house. If you'll just speak the word, I know that my servant is going to be made, made well. And so Jesus does it. The servant is healed. And so uh, Jesus says to him, you have great faith. And only two times in, in, in the Gospels is this phrase used that somebody had great faith. This is one of them. So there's little faith, thy faith, and great faith. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parallel these to our lives by saying this. These are levels called hope so, think so, know so. All right? I want you to think about where you are in your life and your circumstances. And I want you to think, what level are you on? Hope so, think so, or no so. That you say to yourself, hey, can God come in and rescue a marriage? Can God come in and, and heal and, and set free? Is he still that kind of God? Can God provide for you? Well, I sure hope so. I hope so. I mean, we know hope plays a part in faith, but it's little faith. I sure hope so. And then I want you to think about, think so. Can God come in and touch your marriage, and bless you financially, and minister to, to your body? I think so. I think so. The same question. Can God come in and touch your marriage, and change your finances, and fix this circumstance? I know so. Those are three different positions, clearly, and we're all on one of those planes today. It all determines on the ebb and flow of the doubt versus the faith in your life. And here's the thing about faith and doubt. One of them is going to win. One of them is going to win. So the second thing I want to talk about is analysis paralysis. You guys have heard this statement before. Analysis paralysis is when you're thinking about it so hard, and you're trying to process it so hard that it stuns you. You can't even move. Many times this plays out, out for us physically. We're thinking through a scenario. We're trying to make a, a decision, and it's slow going because we're overthinking it. Analysis paralysis. This happens for us big time spiritually. And people don't even know it sometimes, but you're stuck for months. You haven't grown for months, haven't changed in months, don't know anything more about Christ than you did six months ago, and, and you're stuck. You have analysis paralysis. And this is happening here on this road to Emmaus. Again, the same scenario playing out, Luke chapter 24. The resurrection has happened. They are in disbelief, and this is where we pick up verse 13. It says, says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened, just hanging out, just talking about the resurrection. 
And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he, being Jesus, said to them, What is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. This is analysis paralysis. Jesus is saying, tell me about it. And they're just stumped. They just stand still, looking sad. And I wonder how applicable that is to some of us this morning. That if you could draw a picture of where you are right now with God, it would look just like that. Standing still, looking sad. Not knowing where to go. I don't know what the next step is. I've analyzed this thing to death. How how can this be taking place? And they stood still. And so oftentimes, stay, stay with me, faith can be paradoxical. And what a paradox is, it's, it's like two ideas, both of them are right, but they sound absurd. Think about a train track. They're, they're running parallel with e- each other. It's a paradox. They both make sense independently, but when you put them together, it doesn't make any sense. Let me give you an example. An example would, would, would be this. I'm going to take a step away from my job so that I can be better at it. That's a paradox. I'm going to get behind to go beyond. It's a paradox. But, but it's very, very true. It sounds absurd to us, but yet it's very true. When you, when you look at it, if I can just take a break, in church world we call this a sabbatical. If I can just step back for a minute, I can reassess where we are, where we need, need to go, what God is trying to do through us, and then because I paused, when I come back, I'm going to be more efficient. It's a paradox. And sometimes faith is very much like this. And so we're seeing a paradox take place in Luke 24 because this entire group is having to let go to hold on. They're having to let let go of old ways of thinking and the old scenario because before Jesus was with us, we heard him, we experienced him, we hung out with him. I mean, we, we were a residual effect of every single miracle. We were there. But now, I mean... He's, he's not with us anymore. And this describes the postmodern church. I mean, what do we do when we can't see him physically? When we can't hear him? When we can't touch, touch him? When we can't ask him to pull away from the crowd to minister to us? I don't, I don't know how to function in that. And this is why there's so much teaching about having faith. Because it requires it. And so they are completely paralyzed from the analysis going on. They're having to let go to hold on. And oftentimes in our faith struggle, it's not the question, how is this happening? But it's, how is this happening to me? Okay? Let me explain what I'm talking about. In our lives, we get that certain things happen. We understand bad things happen to good people. The Bible even tells us it rains on the just and the unjust. We get it. We can process that. We understand it. We're grown up enough to know and have enough life experience under us to get things are going to happen that I don't like. And when it happens to somebody else, let me just use the terrible example of someone passing away. We get that. 
We get these bodies die. We understand that. And when we see it happen in somebody else, we get around them, we love them, we encourage them, we pray over them, we send them meals we do. We do things that families do. But when it happens to us, we struggle. So it's not just, why is this happening? It becomes, why is this happening to me? And it becomes personal. And it attacks our faith. Why? Why? Why me? Because it shouldn't be happening to me. And I don't know if it's ego. I don't know if it's because we think we're living so righteously that nothing could ever happen. But for some reason, that's in us. I've told you this many times, but I'm just trying to be very authentic. But I remember when we lost our first child, I gave God my resume in my prayer time. God? Uh, I mean, I don't know what's going on in heaven, but down here things aren't so so good. And I want to remind you that I'm in the ministry here trying to help you out. Why is this happening to me? And then I went on to tell God how smart I was. God, I am, I don't know if you know this or not, but I could be doing some other things. And um, I didn't have anything to tell him, but I, I told him there were definitely other things I could be involved in. I want you to get this, God, that, you know, I know this happens to other people, but I don't know if you've seen my resume, who I am, what I'm doing for you. I don't, I don't have to be doing this. I mean, I, I volunteered for this. I'm, I'm in it. But I just want you to consider that this shouldn't be happening to me because I could be doing something else. And I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of above this. Somewhere in me, that was there. Why is this happening to me? And I mean, faith, just trying to survive in that. So having faith, hear me today, does not mean that you can't be a realist. You can be. You can have reality and embrace it and deal with it and still be faith-filled. There's something terrible going on in my life, and I embrace it. But in that embracing, I still am going to be full of faith. I'm not going to freak out just because something happened. There's a great dance between faith and doubt. And watch, hear me, because this may mess up some of y'all's theology today. You can have both existing in the same experience. Faith and doubt coexist constantly. And one of them in every single experience that we have is going to win. One of them is going to rise up and win every single circumstance. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Mark chapter 9 is this great story. Again, if you haven't read it, you need to. Starting in verse 21, there is this... God, he comes to the Lord, and he says, listen, I got this kid. He's demon-possessed. He does all kinds of crazy things. When it's really bad, he jumps into fire. He jumps into water. King James says he gets rigid. He's just, meaning you, you can't talk to him. He's out of his head. Jesus saying this, and if we, we believe he's deity, then we know he already knows the answer to this question. 
So the point of it is to get the dad to speak up. So he says this, how long has he been this way? Jesus knows how long he's been this way. But what he needs is for the father to answer. And the father says this, from childhood. Meaning this, as long as I can remember, it's been this way. And that, that's, that's what he wanted. He wanted the father to admit, I don't even know what's normal anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't know what, what it's like to, ha- to have a house of peace. I don't know what it's like to have, have a kid that's full of peace. I don't know what it's like to have my own life full of peace. My, my life right now is, is just, it's, it's crazy. This has gone on from, from childhood. And some of you may really have that same context. You dress well, you act well, but inside there's a storm that's been brewing for a long time. And that's the context of who you really are. It's that one thing that you just can't seem to get out of your head. It's that one person, that one circumstance, that one act, that one behavior, the one thing you cannot seem to get rid of, and it's gone on for years and years and years. And I'm talking about faith and doubt coexisting, and they go back and forth, and there's a battle inside of you, and you come to church, and you try to get involved in life group, and you try to give, and you try to serve, and you try to just do religious stuff, but inside of you is a storm. And he says the greatest thing here that every single one of us can completely understand. He says this. Jesus tells him in verse 23, everything is possible for those who believe. And he comes back with this very authentic statement. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because there's a part of me that knows There's a part of me that is sure, there's a part of me that is certain, and there's a part of me that is stark crazy because of this. There's a part of me that wants to pull my hair out and scream and run off and abandon this child. There's a part of me that wants to to hold my hands up and just quit. But yet there's this other part that says, just hold on, just calm down, just wait a minute, just take a breath, just believe. That's not far from us, is it? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So my third thing, who is more important than what? Okay. Listen, our guys are going to start serving communion. I just tell you that because I don't want you to be distracted. I want you to stay plugged in with me, but I'm going to have them serve communion. Who is more important than what? Let's look at our story. Luke 24, verse 25 says, And he says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ would suffer these things and enter into glory? And for three more verses, all the way up to 29, he goes on and on and tells them, I told you this. Why didn't, why didn't you believe me when we had time together, when I was here with you? This is what I taught. This is what I tried to put in you. And in verse 30, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. The who is more important than the what. When they figured out that Jesus was with them, it changed everything for them. 
it flipped in them, and the doubt began to, to, to change. Now, this is what we know, and I tend to tell you this every time I talk about faith because I think it's, I think it's rich to know this. But in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, it says, To everyone has been given the measure of faith. Meaning this, every single person has faith, and you can put it in whoever or whatever you want to. You, you can believe in a personality. You can believe in an object. You can put your faith in finance. You can put your faith in a politician. You have the right, because the will of God, he will not invade. You can put your faith in whatever you want. It's God's gift to you. You've got faith, you've got the ability to believe, and you can put it in whatever you want. But the Lord is calling us, if you will put that faith in me, anything is possible. Anything is possible. The who is much more important than the what. And so for these guys, when they realize it's true, you are with us, the who changed all of it. So who is in you is much more important than what's happening to you. Right? I'm going to say that again. Who is in you is much more important and much more powerful than what is happening to you. So when you look at this struggle between faith and doubt, keep that in mind that the who is always going to trump the what. When it comes to our faith, let me end, end with this. When it comes to you and I believing, we need to complete the swing. Complete the swing. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When I was a teenager, I was really into baseball. We play all the time. I've shared this with you. My dad was my coach. A lot of fun. Great coach. Great team. Lots of fun. Always in tournaments. Always winning. It was just a great season of life. A lot of fun. And on, on a weekend... We might play, you know, six, seven games in a tournament. And I would always leave those tournaments hurting really bad on the right side of my body. And it was, it was unusual to be that young and athletic and, and be in a lot of pain without an obvious reason to be. And it always take me, you know, two or three days to really recover from it. Just ice and, and Tylenol and heat pads and all kinds of stuff. But I just kept complaining and kept complaining. Finally, my dad said, I think, I think maybe you broke a rib. I mean, let's go to the doctor. Let's get some x-rays. I think maybe you've got a rib over there that just keeps on, you know, it's broken. It's just irritating. So we go to my doctor, and he said, hey, you know, there's, there's nothing in here broke. You know, I just think you've got some inflammation happening in your muscles. And we left with no answers. And my dad said, I tell you what, we're going to go see a swing coach, and we're going to see if he can't diagnose this. And so we went to the swing coach. And he said, I'm going to throw you 40 pitches, and I want you to do what you would do in a, in a game. I'm going to throw, I'm going to mix them up. It's not going to be the same pitch, and I just, I'm not going to tell you what I'm throwing. I just want you to do your, your thing. And what he found out immediately after those 40 pitches, he said, I know exactly what your problem is. He said, you're not following through on your swing, and for some reason you will go to commit to that ball and something gets in your head, and it's no longer the right right pitch for you. But you've already you've already put all the torque into it, and then you then you then you're stopping. And when you're doing that, it's taking so much of your muscle to stop its initial action. It's just you're just tearing all that up all the time. 
And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to, if you're going to commit to it, follow on through it. Let that swing finish out. And it's not going to be near as hard on you if you just go ahead and just, just fully swing through. And I thought about that this week because it's very similar to the decisions that we're making. We're, we're all in. We want to do something for God. We want to live right. We, we want to win people. We want to be a, a healthy church with healthy families, raising healthy kids and so on. And we're, we're committed to that. But then something gets in our head. And it's doubt. I mean, between the thinking and the feeling, we, we go to commit, and then we just stop it on. We lock it up. And it just tears us up on the inside. And we need to go ahead and follow through. Just, just be all the way in. And I think, if I'm being completely honest, there's a lot in this book that's mysterious. There's a lot in here we're not going to fully understand until Jesus comes and reveals it. And we're going to have to be okay with that. We're going to have to be okay with why is this happening to me. Because one of those things, faith or doubt, is going to win out. And we're going to have to let one of them get, get bigger. Faith's got to, got to grow and push doubt out of our lives. These men in Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to end with this and we'll take communion. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour. This is after they talked to Jesus and broke bread. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem saying the Lord has risen indeed. These were men scared to death. And now they're going back to the place that they had originally fled from to tell the good news that Jesus was alive. Okay, and as you know, this spurs on and gets on into the book of Acts, and the church begins to explode in growth because they are so full of confidence. Why would they go back to, to Jerusalem after being behind locked doors? i tell you why. God did not call them out of Jerusalem. Doubt drove them out of Jerusalem. And so hear me. There are some things in your life you have let doubt drive you away from. God didn't call you away from it. You've let doubt drive you out. There are de-churched people in our city who today could be with us, but they are not. Because doubt has driven them away. There's some of you that come every single week, but there's that part of your life that you have completely disengaged from because doubt has won. And maybe some of you, you find yourself spiritually connected to this story because somewhere in your life you have found a room and you have locked the door and you've said, I'm not coming out until things change. And you're a believer, but you're just full of doubt. And today the Lord can rule in your life again and reveal himself to you and the who can be more important than the what if you let faith win. Why don't you all stand with me real quick? I'm going to serve this and then...